both here and out on the phone, and ultimately by tape. There's different levels of opportunity to hear that which needs to be said. I really only have one announcement today. It's certainly a happy one. It has to do with next Sabbath being the past of the tenth month, in which we can implore God about the seeds that is about to come on His church, His house, His people, and commemorating the seeds that came on Jerusalem many, many years ago. We know it's coming. The scriptures are very plain that it is. And Zechariah indicates that these fasts have been kept, or should have been kept, these last 70 years. And maybe we didn't understand it soon enough to do it, but we can pick it up when we do understand it. Maybe there are a few here and there around the world that did understand and have been keeping it for many years. I don't know that. But it wouldn't surprise me any. <clears throat> Someone might have picked up on this and been personally and individually doing it for these years, or at least some of them. There is also, Celeste has been kind enough to uh, make up a little wallet card of the holy days and important dates for the next year, beginning with the Passover in 07 and going through again until the Passover of 08. Those will be placed in your mailbox so that you have them and can carry them around. Uh, the calendar also has been updated on the website I think at least through 08. Is that what you did? Uh, someone said, well, the calendar's not up for next year, but it is now. So you can go there and, and see it if you lose your card or need another card or whatever. It's there. <clears throat> well, we came down to Ezekiel 8 last time, and I want to pick it up there. You'll recall that 5, 6, and 7 are a very dire prophecy upon Israel as a whole, and certainly upon spiritual Israel first. And we'll see in chapter 8 that God focuses uh, quite a bit on the altar or the church, not just the physical nation, but there is a blend of both in the book of Ezekiel, and sometimes one is more prominent perhaps, and sometimes the other. But God is not only upset with this nation, he's also upset with his own church. We'll see that brought out in chapters 8 and 9 very, very clearly, and even more as we go on through the book of Ezekiel. There are some chapters dedicated specifically to the altar or the ministry, and along with that, those who worship there. But he talks about famine, pestilence, and disease in chapter 7. And then in verse 23, he says you could just make a chain of all the bloody crimes. They're just end to end, like the links in a chain. You listen to any real news today, and you find crime after crime after crime being committed and reported. There is seemingly no really good news, but it's murder and violence and rape and, and uh, chicanery of one kind or another, embezzlement, robbery, burglary, you name it. Uh, it's there. Link to link, end to end. And he says he's going to bring the worst of the heathen, verse 24, to possess our houses. They're going to come in 
take over the land, uh, foreclose on it, if you will, since we owe foreign lands so much money. And when they see the dollar devalued, they'll see that value going away, and that is happening as we speak today. More and more countries are beginning to dump their dollars and go into euros or gold or yen or whatever they might choose other than dollars. It's not a flood or a panic yet, but it is a movement that is occurring, and it will increase until the dollar becomes what it really is, just a little piece of paper that has no value. It will finally be recognized as having no value. And the point of all this, all the way through, and I emphasized last week, is over and over and over, he says, and they will know that I am the Eternal. His whole point in bringing trouble, difficulty, and pain and agony upon the church and upon the nation is that ultimately we might learn the lesson that he truly, truly is God. And there is no way you can go against him and against his ways and survive. We may be skeptical. We may not believe it. We not, may not believe it enough to do it to the degree that we ought to, to obey and follow his ways. But as this comes, those who have their ears open will heed more and more, and those who do not will despise more and more, and the pressure will just get greater until ultimately every knee will bow, one way or another. If you will not ultimately bow it, it will simply be broken, and then it will have no choice but to bow. The whole world is going to come to know that God is the eternal. That is the last word, last phrase of the last verse of chapter 7. So with that thought in mind and that brief review, let's go into chapter 8. It changes somewhat here. It came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the eternal God fell there upon me. So he was sitting in his own house in the land of captivity, and the elders of the Jews had heard him to one degree or another, and they sat before him. So much of what follows this, then, must be what God has to say to the elders of the land, because that is who is present when this vision of God comes. Verse 2, Then I beheld, and lo, a likeness as the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his loins, even downward fire, and from his loins, even upward, as the appearance of brightness, as the color of amber. Now, I don't know that the elders there saw this, but Ezekiel did. Even as, when Christ had the transfiguration on the mount, and there in vision came Moses and Elijah. Uh, no one but those whom Christ had chosen could see what was there. But they could. Now to me, it seems that God is here beginning to show his hand in an open way. This is an end time prophecy. Didn't have to do with back then so much as it does right now, because they were already in captivity and we are about to go in captivity. 
So it's for now. And God, as Christ indicates in the book of Zechariah, Christ will rise and begin to do his end-time work. He may be sitting on the throne or in that posture, in that sense right now, waiting until the time is right, but then Zechariah makes it clear he will rise and go to work uh, on a very specific work. It's not that he's not working now, but he's speaking of a very specific time with a very specific end-time work that must be accomplished. The church is sort of in limbo, marking time in some respects, and so is the nation and the world until these things began to be done in an open and obvious fashion. Even Zechariah 1 says, the earth was at peace. I'm just sort of sitting there, nothing much happening, maybe wars and rumors of wars and so on, but not a worldwide conflagration. And it said, how long, O Lord, will you wait until you take vengeance for what has occurred? So Ezekiel's projecting forward into that time when Christ will become very active in, in introducing the end-time elements. Verse 3, He put forth the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looked toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. So, Ezekiel was by the river Kibar, up north of uh, Babylon, or north of, in the north part of the Babylonian Empire, having been taken there with the Jews. And God was going to give him a message, so it's like he picked him up in the vision and took him to Jerusalem to behold what would happen, what would happen to Israel. Now, all that was left of that nation had been taken basically into captivity to Babylon of the Jews. Remember, the other tribes of Israel had left long before this and gone into Middle and Western Europe and ultimately, ultimately perhaps even to the New World. There's much, much evidence that Israel was here long, long ago, even back as far as David and Solomon, and then here and there from that time forward. So they were already gone, and the Jews were in the captivity of Babylon, so why does he take him back to Jerusalem? He takes him back to Jerusalem because that is the setting of what is about to occur now, and is already in in fact, occurring already within the church and is very quickly coming upon the nation. We certainly understand by now that Jerusalem and Zion are types of the church, according to Hebrews 12 and many, many, many other scriptures. So God begins to deal directly, and he goes back to a scene very similar to that of Elijah where God took Elijah off the face of the earth and moved him to another place. And I think that that is also very clearly because uh, what will happen in the end time, because Moses and Elijah from Malachi 4 are types, or the two witnesses are types of Moses and Elijah and the work that they did. So I think that since he uses this analogy that occurred originally with Elijah and applies it to the end time, 
you're going to see the same kind of thing happen in the end time work when it comes to that point. But God will take, perhaps not only in vision, but perhaps move physically, as he did Elijah, his leaders to different parts of the world to teach the truth. I don't think anyone would let them on an airliner. God will have to do it a different way. So he took him up much in the same way in vision as he had Elijah originally. Lifted me up between the earth and the heaven, took him to Jerusalem to the door of the inner gate that looks toward the north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. Now what is that? Let's begin going back to Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, there's two or three references here that give us a clue. Deuteronomy 4, and I want to take verse 23. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the eternal your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image, or the likeness of anything which the eternal your God has forbidden you. For the eternal your God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. So, Ezekiel speaks of an image of jealousy. Back here, God forbids us to make anything that would cause God jealousy. And that could include anything that has in its root or basis idolatry, where we put anything ahead of God. So he is a jealous God. Now notice in Deuteronomy 4, if you skip down to verse 30, when you were in tribulation and all these things are come upon you because you did disobey God, even in the latter days, if you turn to the eternal your God and shall be obedient to his voice, for the eternal your God is a merciful God, he will not forsake you, neither destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. Now we're going to see as we go on into the book of Ezekiel that God makes this point very clearly when he says who will be judged and how they will be judged. I won't go there yet because it becomes very clear as we get into that part of the book. But it's certainly tied back here to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the blessings and the cursings that he originally put on Israel and Israel has disobeyed pretty much ever since and God is going to bring this end time punishment as a result of that. So God told us not to make any images that he would be jealous of. We're going to see as we go on through this the various types of images that we and man have made that has caused God jealousy. Verse 4, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, according to the vision that I saw in the plain. So he was on the river plain, and he saw this vision of what would be happening in Jerusalem, i.e. the church or the nation of Israel ultimately. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now the way toward the north. What was north? Well, Babylon and the kingdoms of this world were to the north of Jerusalem. Now see, he was sitting in Babylon but he was projected back to Jerusalem. So the perspective of where he was in the vision was looking from Jerusalem to the north. Now he was north of the city of Babylon when the vision came. 
But that was not the perspective of what he was seeing. The perspective of his view and the vision was of sitting in Jerusalem, looking to the north, that is, toward Babylon. What was Babylon? A pagan society controlled by Satan the devil. Now, to the north also is the throne of God, and Satan had attacked God in the north at his throne and been cast out. So, looking to the north from Jerusalem puts you in view of some pretty terrible things. And that was his perspective. Lift your eyes toward the north. So I lifted my eyes the way toward the north, and behold northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. So the north gate, whereby there was entry into the temple and the altar, there was an image of jealousy in the entry. In other words, there was something at the entry to the temple, the entry to the church, if you will, and ultimately to the entry of Israel as a whole. There was something there that put God off, that blocked the entry to God coming in and blocked the entry, therefore, to true worship. That's what he saw. An image of jealousy in the entry. Now, do we have those today in Jerusalem, the church, who would block the path to true worship? This is an end-time prophecy. It has to do with the altar, the temple, the church of God. Now that is something that God did not appreciate, and it was an abomination. Let's go on to verse 6 and see that. He said, furthermore to me, son of man, see you what they do. Now we need to be able to analyze this today and apply it to today because it is about today. We need to understand what is being done today that would block the entry to the temple. Let's see. Do you see what they do? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary. It shows there that whatever is being done in the temple, in the church in Jerusalem, that is, the church of God, blocks God from coming in. Now that echoes what we've read in the minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all through the prophecies. To say God has turned his face away or cannot abide looking at his own church, his own people, or this nation that came from Abraham that is in idolatry today. God can't stand to look at the church or the nation in his present viewpoint. And Ezekiel is describing, once again, in a little bit different context, the same thing we've read in so many, many different places. So he says, even the great abominations that Israel commits here, that I cannot go there, I'll stay far away. But turn you yet again, and you shall see even greater abominations. Now this is going to intensify 
in greatness of abomination as we go through this chapter. It'll say, it'll see greater, and then we'll see it'll say greater, and it'll say even greater. So there is a progression and in intensity of more and more terrible abominations. It's bad enough, and it is an abomination, that there would be those who would say things, do things, that would cause us not to be able to worship truly in a way that God could accept and come in and be a part of. That's bad enough, isn't it? Don't all the churches of God, all the splinters at this point, want God to be in among them? Don't they all want God's blessing, God's sanction, God's guidance and direction? Don't they all claim to have it? I think pretty much all of them do. I don't think that any of the ministers in any of the congregations or churches that still exist would say, God is not with us. I don't think that the people who go to all the different groups would say, God is not with us. I don't think you and I would want to say, God is not with us. Perhaps it is a matter of degrees. We are still God's people. Even with all the abominations mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, all seven of those churches are still considered God's churches. No matter how much bad was said against them, and no matter how much God had against each one, of course everyone says, they don't want to be identified, really, most of them, with anything except Philadelphia. Because less bad is said about Philadelphia than any of the others, so naturally you'd want to be a part of that. They forget, I think, that God even tells Philadelphia, you must overcome if you're to be a part of the kingdom of God. So people say, well, he doesn't say anything bad about Philadelphia. Well, maybe he doesn't point out specifically what its problems are, but he does say to overcome, and that must mean that they have something to overcome. So all the churches must overcome to be a part of the kingdom of God. And I think it's dangerous to wrap ourselves in Philadelphia and say there must be nothing much wrong with us. Christ himself said that he didn't have much to do with those who would beat their chests and claim how righteous and good they were, speaking of the Pharisees. But to the, to the man he would look was one who bowed his head and could hardly look up to God and say, forgive me a sinner. Those are the ones that get God's attention. What posture do most of the churches have today? Most of them have the posture, we're the Philadelphians, all you others are the bad guys. So they, in that sense, are proud. In that sense, they claim to be something. Many of them claim to be the only apostle or that prophet or the only Philadelphia Church of God. The rest are Laodiceans. It takes various forms. We're the leading ministry or the leading evangelist or whatever it might be. 
Is that what God is looking for? Or is God looking for people who are seeking meekness and humility, trying to get rid of all kinds of pride and vanity, so that they don't block God coming in? You see, God says he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. The two witnesses are not going to come bragging about their office. They're going to come in sackcloth, representing humility, meekness, not bragging that they are the only witnesses of God. They are the only true ministry. They won't come that way. Can't come that way. Anyone who does come that way is going to be resisted by God. God will want nothing to do with that. So any who stand up and take that approach are blocking God's entry into the church and they are blocking true worship because they are going on their work instead of God's work. Now they'll call their work God's work, but is it truly God's work? when we raise ourselves up in vanity and ego and selfishness, that is something God resists. He hates pride. He gives grace to the humble. If we want to be part of the church of God that he returns to, that is willing to turn his face to instead of from, then the key is to be humble and meek and to bow our heads and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Any other attitude, any other approach, is one to turn God away instead of forth. You've got to let the chips fall where they will. And we must be very, very careful. don't want to fall in this category. I think many do. I think most of the church does. Most of the ministry does. That's why Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23 and Malachi are there. We need to be very, very careful that we're not part of that. And it is natural. It is human. It is so natural to like to think of ourselves as special. Now, God has said his whole church to him is special. Those whom he's called, and out of that he's choosing the first fruits. Those who will not be naughty, not be rotten, not have worms, but will have grown and gotten rid of the impurities and whatever rottenness and blemishes they might have, and not be spotted, but be beautiful First ripe fruits. That's what he's looking for. And none of us started out that way. We're naughty and small and green and blemished. And the worms have gotten to us to one degree or another. So we must all repent and seek God with our whole heart. See, if you're only seeking God half-heartedly or partially-heartedly, There's still idolatry. 
because he must be first and foremost in every part of our lives. Otherwise, we still worship ourselves in one form or another, or to one degree or another. And it must become where we are willing to put God first above our desires, our hopes, our needs, our wishes, in every way. So that we serve him and his people first. That is what he is looking for. Anything short of that blocks our entry into true worship and his entry into his temple. Now, there is going to be such a people who turn to him with all their heart in this end time. There will be such a people. And he says he will come suddenly to his temple. He will be with those people. He will turn his face to them and love them and bless them because of how they have been willing to sacrifice and present themselves as a living sacrifice, not conforming to this world, but being transformed by the Spirit of God into clones of God, if you will, in the image of God rather than the image of this world. There will be such a people. Won't be big, be small. It'll be about a 10% remnant willing to do it out of the roughly 150,000 that there were in the church. Never that many truly repentant and baptized and converted, but that many called perhaps. Maybe more than that if you consider those who came in and died and so on. But in the actual attendance at the feast, we came up to roughly 150,000 before it went the other direction. So 10% of what we're not sure of, but a small tithe or 10% of his people will turn with their whole heart. You and I have opportunity to be part of that, but I think we need to also understand Ezekiel, what he's talking about, and how we might be blocking God, and therefore blocking ourselves from true worship in the temple. By attitude. And it's something that over 90% of the church is involved in right now. Well over 90%. If I were guessing, I'd say 99 plus percent are blocking themselves right now. Now as the pressure comes on, some will repent. And some will turn to God with their whole heart. And ultimately, before the tribulation starts, it's going to amount to about 90 plus percent, just short, I mean uh, roughly 10 percent, just short of that, who turn to God and whom He draws together to form his latter temple that he will be a part of and dwell with and be in. Understanding that gives us an opportunity. Understanding that gives us a chance to do it. He's opened that understanding to us. Now it's up to us to do something about it. And I think that he has called and given us this information because we are weak and base and small, we're not great, any of us, by any means. So that we can turn to him with our whole heart, and he can show his greatness in us. By blessing, by healing, by showing in some way that he is working with us. I think we can be a part of that. 
if we don't come to have the right attitudes and turn to him now with our whole heart, then he can't use us as the basis to start something, can he? So being here doesn't give us anything unless we come to have that meekness and humility that he is seeking. And that level of obedience and diligence in serving him that we need. If we'll do that, I think he'll use us. If we don't, he'll use somebody else. And if we repent in time, we can be part of it. So let's not be part of the abomination that blocks God from the church or blocks us from true worship. Because it is a very infectious thing that has taken over from pretty much the whole church. Including us. Alright, let's go on. That's the first level of an image of jealousy that God is concerned about. That has blocked his way from the church. He said furthermore to me, Son of man, see you what they do, even the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here, I'm in verse 6, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn you yet again, and you shall see greater abominations. Not only is their conduct and their attitude such that it blocks me from them, but it gets even worse. He brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Here's the church of God with a hole in the wall. Now, when you have a house, you don't like a big hole in the wall, do you? Because in that hole can come bad air. In that hole can come cold air, hot air in the summer. In that hole can come mice. In that hole can come snakes. In that hole could crawl burglars, murderers, and rapists. You don't like a hole in the side of your house. God does not like a hole in the side of his house. He said you can only come in one way. That's through the door. Christ made it very clear in the book of John. He's the only way in. And anyone who comes in any other way, he's going to take exception to. So here, these people are blocking the door. And God won't even go in the door. But there's a hole in the wall and it's in all kinds of wrong things. That's not something that would please God. See, it gets worse. A hole in the wall or a breach. Isaiah 58 talks about a people that will be repairers of the breach. You can go back to Ezra and Nehemiah, the building of the temple and of the wall, and how they had to fix the holes in the wall. There wasn't much left standing. Well, here's a hole in the wall of the court of the temple. Then said he to me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said to me, Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So they had made a hole in the wall, and all kinds of abominations had come into the church. Now, Ezekiel was to dig his own hole, and there he would find a door. He wasn't to go in the hole that the wickedness had gone in. He was to dig a hole himself, 
and there would be a door on the other side, and he would open that door, and he would see the filthiness that had come into the church and into the nation. But this is specifically about the temple and the church. So I think that if we look in this door that Ezekiel has dug through the wall and found, we will begin to understand the abominations that have come into the church. We can't go in the way the pagans and the heathen came in. We can't go in the way sin entered the church. That's the wrong way to go. But we can dig through the wall and look through the door. Who is the door? Christ is the door. We must dig. Didn't he say over and over, seek me like you would silver and gold? Find me. Dig for me, in other words. It would have been easy to go in the hole that others had made. But we need to go through the hole that Christ said to make. And through his eyes, through his perspective, through the understanding of the scriptures he wrote, we are able to discern between truth and abomination. Because the church today is full of abominable things that people are trying to say are good and right and righteous. And I'm going to give you an example in a few moments to show that. Something that is absolutely, in my view, at least, an abomination that is leading people to think that it is righteousness. Scary. Christ is the door. He's the only way we can know and through him discern true righteousness from that which is allegedly righteous. Pharisees and Sadducees appeared righteous to people, didn't they? But they weren't looking through Christ's eyes, were they? Now, when he opened his mouth and saw what he saw with his eyes, he saw something a whole lot different than what Israel saw when they looked at the Pharisees and Sadducees. They looked at themselves in their own eyes and thought they were righteous before God. Even wrote their good deeds on their sleeves. And everyone else looked at them and thought, well, these must be the people of God. Must be men of God. Must be leaders of God. Christ said, that's not so. There are a lot of people today who claim to be leaders of God's church who are not. They're not leading in the right direction. They're not doing the right things. So there was a hole in the wall. He said, I I found the door, and he said to me, Go in. Behold the wicked abominations that they do here. Look through Christ's eyes at the church, not through the church's eyes of the holes they have dug, thinking they are getting into the temple of God and are a part of the temple of God, while really they're an abomination. We, you and I are a part of 
the church of God, are we not? How much abomination have we brought into the temple of God? How much abomination still clings to us? How much idolatry? How much covetousness? How much of lacking the honor for our Father in heaven? How much is still selfishness and materiality in me? You see, no one is excluded. I have brought abomination into the church of God. I have to repent every day of feelings, emotions, thoughts, activities that might be an abomination to God. Because I still commit them every day of my life. And if you're honest, so do you. Every one of us puts something that has to do with self ahead of God every day. Lack of devotion, lack of time in prayer and study, as well as abominable, selfish thoughts that come through our heads. And sin cuts us off from God. I don't want to be, brethren, self-deluded in the thinking I'm a true Christian like the Pharisees did of themselves. I don't want any of us to. And that's why today we're letting the chips fall just as God is showing Ezekiel they need to fall. We need to give due diligence to obedience to God. So he looked in this hole in the wall, behold the door, he said to me, go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do there. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping thing, an abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. It's very similar to what God said in Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar and to Belshazzar. The handwriting is on the wall. I guess it was Belshazzar, the king that would be taken away. The handwriting is on the wall of the church as well. Portrayed on the wall inside the temple, it says. So all we have to do is look in the whole, the perspective of Christ. He's the true door. Look through his eyes at the church. And he has a different view than the whole where all these abominable and creeping things crept into the church. Different view. There are many, many godless things in the church, and most of the organizations of the church today are allowing a lot of that to continue. There are certain sacred cows that they will not address. Certain things they simply will not preach about, or if they do, they certainly skirt around or beat around the bush in so doing. They're so busy talking about their work, they don't have time to look at the idols and abominations that we have brought out of Babylon into the church. Now, as you remember, was north toward Babylon, north toward the rebellion of Satan. And how everyone in between the church and God is godless. The society and Satan who started it. 
Verse 11, there stood before them seventy men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jeazamiah, the son of uh, Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Now, Shaphan is mentioned in Second Chronicles 34, verse 8. Let me go back there for a moment. Let's read that, because the context is good. Second Chronicles 34. Let's start in verse 8. Now in the eighteenth year of his reign, this is speaking of Josiah, who was a righteous king, when he had purged the land and the house, the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah and Massasiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. How many people were here? Let's see. Shaphan, Messiah, Joah, three. Uh, to repair the house of the eternal as God. And when they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, taken there to give the workers, verse 17, um, so that they might have the wherewithal to repair the, the temple. Which the Levites had kept the doors had gathered in the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim, and all the remnant of Israel, all of all Judah and Benjamin, they returned to Jerusalem, and they put it in the hand of the workmen, that is, the oversight of the house of the Eternal, and gave it to the workmen that wrought in the house of the Eternal to repair and amend the house. Now, Zechariah 1 talks about four who came to destroy the house of God, the, the church. And then four carpenters who came to repair it. So there is a tie-in here with the former and the latter temple in the end time. But Shaphan was one of the workers sent to repair the temple. Now let's go back to Ezekiel 8. And it talks about 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. These were of the elders then. And one of them was Shaphan. No, it was not Shaphan. It was the son of Shaphan. Now, Shaphan had been a builder of the temple under Josiah, but now his son is mentioned here. Jeazaliah, or Jeazamiah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. So they are in a religious context. Shaphan was a builder, a restorer, a fixer, if you will, of the temple. But his son is cast in a very different light here. Let's go on and see that. Then said he to me, Son of man, have you seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? He is talking here of an imagery that is in a man's mind that is a jealousy to God. An image in some men's mind that is an affront to God and prevents God. This is a greater abomination than that which we started with back up in verse 5 where it blocked God and blocked true worshipers. But it got even worse. Men who have an image of themselves and their own minds in the dark now, if you're speaking of the church here, this would have to be spiritually dark. 
The nation is in the darkness physically, spiritually, in every way, but this is speaking of the elders of the religious group in Israel. So, specifically, here, the church. Every man in the chambers of his own imagery. People who think, do you know of anybody who says in the church today, I'm in the dark? No, they all claim to be in the light, don't they? In the view of most, they are in the light, and everyone else is in the dark. They are in the light of God's grace as a Philadelphian, and everyone else is a Laodicean whom God despises. Isn't that pretty much a true picture of how most people in the church today look upon themselves? Now, God says that there are a lot who are doing some things in the dark, and perhaps they don't even realize they're in the dark. For they say, the eternal sees not, the eternal has forsaken the earth. Now, those who are in the dark in the church wouldn't say, for the most part, that God doesn't see us. Some of them even say, in some, in one respect, the Christ isn't coming back anytime soon. It'll be another hundred or two or three or four hundred years. This is one of the major organizations who has that perspective, last I heard anyway. God isn't really paying that much attention, except maybe to us. But there are a lot in the church who think God has just gone away. Well, we understand from Scripture that he has turned his face, and he won't come near in that sense the temple. That's his posture. But we do recognize that he sees what's going on, don't we? Even though he might can't stand to look at it, he does know what's going on. And he sees it differently than people think he does. Then he says there are even greater abominations than this. But I'm going to give you an example of some people, not just us, who think we are, that they are in the light, but are in darkness. Now I hope that we are repenting and becoming humble and God is showing us more light because we ourselves were in a great deal of darkness. I hope that that darkness is being removed so I don't, by giving an example here of something I ran across last night, I, I don't want to say we're better than they because that is not my intent at all. But I want to use this as an example of what we've been talking about here in this chapter and how that which might appear to be good might not be that way from the view through Christ's own eyes. It's something that is in the church that I believe is an image of jealousy that God is not happy with and yet the people who promulgate it are happy with it and think it's the right way to be. This is just one example. There could be very, very many, but I came across this one right last night because I was reading my December 25th issue of the U.S. News and World Report. Here's a full-page ad. Most of you can probably see it. It's a picture of the, a book cover, a book written by Stephen Flurry, son of Cheryl Flurry of the Philadelphia Church of God has a picture of Herbert Armstrong on the front, 
and it says, Raising the Ruins, the fight to revive the legacy of Herbert W. Armstrong. Now, on the surface, that might appear to be a good work. Here's a book that says that Herbert Armstrong was an important man of God, and we need to revive his legacy. Well, that appears somewhat innocuous, doesn't it? But let's see if we can see Christ's view of what is happening here. The top, it says, Herbert W. Armstrong. There is not one mention, not one mention of God on this whole full-page article. There are some quotes here from people out in the world. This one says, you can take pride in his legacy. Quote from Ronald Reagan, former U.S. president, now dead in the grave. Now, indeed, Ronald Reagan may have said, you can take pride in Herbert Armstrong's legacy. But is that something we should want to repeat. God tells us not to have pride in anything. So even though a man may have said that of Herbert Armstrong, is that a posture that we should take, or is it something we ought to brag about by repeating and publishing? I ask you. Here's another quote. A great humanitarian and philanthropist. That's from Prince Rod, Prince of Jordan. Should we quote that? Herbert Armstrong, a great humanitarian. Here's one from the mayor of Jerusalem, Teddy Collick. One could only be deeply impressed by his vast efforts to promote understanding and peace among peoples. William Bogard, mayor of Pasadena, a giant of a man. Reminds me of a song came out in the 50s or 60s. What does a giant of a man have to do with anything? Is this the hole in the church, or is this the door behind the wall that Ezekiel dug through? One more. In his own quiet way, Mr. Armstrong has done more to promote positive relations between countries than has the U.S. State Department. That's Cygraph, President, Pasadena Chamber of Commerce. It's all about a man. It's all about a man's picture. So far, I've read nothing about God at all. But this is a man's work. I ask you, did Herbert Armstrong do the work of a man, brethren? Or was he there to do the work of God? Who is the central figure? God or man? God or Herbert Armstrong? 
Is this a page preaching Christ and Him dead and resurrected and alive? Or is it about restoring the legacy of a dead man who is dead? Died this January 21 years ago. Why would you want to revive the legacy of Herbert Armstrong? You know, I do not know for a fact that Herbert Armstrong will be in the kingdom of God as a first fruit. I don't know that. Now, I suspect that it may be so, but there is nothing that God has told me or you or said in Scripture that indicates that. Right? May very well be the case. I hope so, and I think it probably would be so. But that's only my opinion. There are other people who think he's going to hell in a handbasket. That's their opinion. Or has already gone there, perhaps. So my opinion, in that sense, matters not, does it? Now, why would I want to revive the legacy of a man who was a giant of a man if I don't even know the man's going to be in the kingdom of God for sure? Now, if you want to revive the legacy of a man that you know is going to be there, why not revive the legacy of David, who will be king of Israel? Or Abraham? If you're really desperate, how about Paul or Peter or John, who will be in the kingdom of God as leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles? If you want to revive the legacy of a man, why not revive them instead of Herbert Armstrong when we don't even know for sure we'll be there? I mean, if you're going to get right down to reviving the legacy, I think you've got a better prospect and a better shot at something with Paul or Peter or John, don't you, than Herbert Armstrong? Now, please, I'm not trying to put Herbert Armstrong down. I'm trying to say that I think some people make an idol of him and that he, even Herbert Armstrong, could become an image of jealousy if we put him ahead of God. And when you're preaching Herbert Armstrong instead of God, you're in danger of doing that. And why was God upset with the ministry? Partly because of the way they treated the sheep but partly because of their focus and the way they went about doing certain things. For instance, Garner Ted Armstrong and all those thousands of broadcasts, tens, hundreds of thousands of broadcasts that went out over televisions and radios in the time that he preached from sometime in the 60s until he quit or was stopped. Very rarely did he talk of God. He talked of dolphins, platypuses, whales, bees, evolution. That these things couldn't have happened without a great unseen hand from somewhere. But rarely did he define whose hand that was. Rarely did he preach God. Instead, he preached that evolution isn't right. Obliquely getting to God sometimes. Herbert Armstrong did not always preach Christ and Him crucified and resurrected either. Now he called it the work of God, 
But very frequently, he called it an unseen hand from somewhere, or he simply reduced it to give and get. There's a give way and a get way. And he rarely would read rulers of the world, or even on broadcasts, defined who was behind the give way and who was behind the get way. Very rarely did he come out and talk about God in heaven and Satan on earth. He did at times. He did more so in the early years than he did in the later years. But he got more and more away from it and talked about give and get and tried to be friends with the world. God says you can't do that. Let me quote to you, or I'll go back and read it, John 15. <coughs> Excuse me, my throat is still a little scratchy from weeks ago. And if I strain it, there it goes. <coughs> John 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If we look like God, if we look as we should, the world is, will, will despise us and hate us. And yet Herbert Armstrong spent a lot of time talking about Ambassador College, and I can remember we were instructed in ministerial conferences in the 60s, early 70s, to knock on doors and not tell them that we are a representative of the Worldwide Church of God, but we are representatives of Ambassador College. It wasn't that behind the scenes we didn't believe in God, but we didn't want the world to hear that we represented the church. We wanted them to know that we represented a college or a foundation, and God remained shadowy in the background. In a way, ashamed, I think, to come right out, boldly state what we knew about God himself. I do not think the end time ministry and the two witnesses of Matthew 24, 14 are going to come in that genre whatsoever. They will call a spade a spade, a shovel a shovel, and a sinner a sinner. And there will be an absolute head-to-head confrontation between the beast and the false prophet and Satan of this world and the representation of God. You won't have to wonder, what is this all about? Let me read a little more here. Not quotes at this point, but what is read, what has been written by the Philadelphia Church of God in this ad. What happened to the global humanitarian empire of Herbert W. Armstrong? An empire of Herbert Armstrong? What happened to the church of God? One of the foremost religious leaders of the 20th century. During the 1980s, Armstrong's work was bigger than those of Jerry Falwell and Billy Graham combined. Are we bragging about how big we were compared to some Protestants? 
preachers? Give us a break here. God said his church would be small and persecuted. But here we're continuing in the give, get, kind of keep God on the outside door and let people think that this is just a better way to live without spelling it out. And they're doing the same thing. This was bigger than Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell and whoever else. Bigger, greater, better. Is there any pride in that statement? Is there any vanity, any ego? What happened after his death in 1986, however, is the most astonishing story in modern religion. And then how the foundation, the colleges, and the church were doctrinally hijacked and spiritually destroyed, which is true. <clears throat> but only a few, it says at the bottom, a faith-filled few held fast to his mission and sought to defend his legacy by raising the ruins. I am not here. You are not here to restore his mission and his legacy. We're here to restore Christ and him crucified and alive today, leading his church to the kingdom of God. And in so doing, condemning the world to the satanic practices that they follow. We're here to preach the legacy of Christ, not the legacy of Herbert Armstrong. Herbert Armstrong may well have been a man of God, and I believe that. But it is not his mission and his legacy I'm here to do. They are forgetting that God could not stand in the door of the church. Could not stand to look at us and therefore blew us out of his mouth as vomit. And we are scattering more and more. Ministers and people are still leaving the big groups and forming their own and becoming smaller and smarter, smaller pieces of vomit. It's still happening. It isn't over yet. And he's about to vomit out this nation and other Israelite nations and go into famine, pestilence, disease, and war and captivity. That's the way the die is cast. I say, what about God? Herbert Armstrong was not the faith once delivered to the church. There are those who say today, well, we have to follow what Herbert Armstrong taught and believed because he was the one who delivered the faith once to the church. No, he wasn't. God Almighty delivered the faith beginning in Genesis 1 to Adam and Eve and ultimately to the church. Our Savior, when He came and lived on this earth, delivered the New Testament faith and the New Testament covenant to James, Peter, and John and the rest of the apostles and ultimately to the church through them in the written Word of God. Those scriptures written by Paul, Peter, James, and John, and others, Luke, were the faith once delivered to the church 
The church was formed in Acts 2, 50 days after Christ ascended. And those men were given by Christ the truth, and they wrote it in the New Testament. It was to them the faith was once delivered. Now, Herbert Armstrong did understand, did grasp, and did follow much of what those men wrote. But did he restore all things? He was not the Elijah to come. I'm sorry. He came. He preached. He died. And here we are, almost 21 years later, and the things that were prophesied for the end time, as we understood them then, has still not come to pass. All truth has not been restored. And the hearts of the fathers and the children have not been turned to each other, nor has the entire church been turned to God with all their heart, minds, body, and soul. Hasn't been done. We have found already quite a few things that Herbert Armstrong did not understand or restore that are found in the pages of the Bible. And I'm sure there are still far more that we've not yet come to see. But here you have, just as an example, a whole, one of the very largest, or one of the larger groups of the Church of God today who are preaching Herbert Armstrong and him dead. Trying to resurrect a dead man. Much of what the man taught was right. But I think this becomes an image of jealousy. I don't think God would be pleased with this. It doesn't even mention him. Your whole program basically has to do with what's happening in Israel and what happened with Herbert Armstrong and trying to restore that. That which God took away and wants to be done far better than it was done then. He wants me to be a whole lot different than I was in Worldwide. He wants you to be a whole lot different than you were in Worldwide. He was not pleased with that. And when the heathen came in, he was mightily unpleased. I was not anywhere near as righteous as I needed to be in 1960 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 2000 or 2006. I still have a long way to go. And so do you. We should not be discouraged by that. We should be working on it. And understand that if we cry out to God to have mercy upon me, a sinner, those are the ones he will start listening to. Those are the ones he will hear. He will not hear those who stand and say, I am the only evangelist, or I am the only apostle, or I am that prophet, or this is the only true work of God, and we are the righteous of the righteous. His ears are deaf to that, and his eyes cannot stand to see it. Verse 13, he said to me, 
turn you yet again, and you shall see greater abominations that they do. Even worse than this one example. And this one example is maybe by one group, and I'm not trying to knock them necessarily above any others. There are others who take the same posture. And it's a posture we should not take. And if we have in our own minds and hearts, we need to get rid of, rid of the image of jealousy that we keep within the chambers of our own minds. Because it is not something God appreciates, likes, wants, and in fact it is something he cannot condone nor stand. If we want to be gathered rather than vomited, we need to be sure our attitude is right. And we go to God every day and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That should be our approach. That should be our attitude. You see, Job had trouble understanding that. He thought he was a righteous man. And indeed, in many respects, he certainly was. But God wanted him to understand the vast difference and gulf between God and man, including Job. And what did he show him? He showed him the beasts of the sea. He showed him the stars of the heaven. He showed him the earth that spins under him. He said, now wait a minute. Let's get our perspective right here. Who's important? Job or Herbert Armstrong or God? Who's important? Me or God? There's a vast gulf between us and God. That's what that is talking about in Luke, where the rich man looked at Lazarus and wept bitterly because he suddenly realized that Lazarus was in the kingdom of God and he was left out and that there was a tremendous gulf at that point between him and Lazarus, just as there always had been between him and God. But it was brought home to him. And we need to be humble today and meek and realize the vast difference there is between us and the Lamb of God. His reactions, his mind, his emotions, his feelings, his understanding, his level of obedience. There's a vast difference. How comical in a way it must be to God to look down at somebody beating his breast and say, I'm the only apostle. And that's the man's focus. That's not godly. That's an affront. That's an unclean thing. That pride, that vanity, that ego that has come in through a hole in the wall in the church of God. Crawled in like an unclean snake or pig, if you will. It's the wrong attitude. And yet, most of the church has bought into it. And look to those men who claim to be so important as if they were that important. And somehow God is lost. He may, in their minds, they may talk about God, but is he truly the object of their worship? And is the idolatry gone? I ask you. You got a mind 
look around at what's going on. But let's look at this through the perspective of the hole in the wall that Ezekiel dug in the door, Christ being the door, and looking in the church from his perspective instead of from the perspective of those slime balls who crawled in a different hole in the wall. And I say those slime balls because I'm including myself and you and all of us who came into the church of God having committed ourselves to his way, to God's way, and that brought an awful lot of abomination and paganism and idolatry with us. So we'll honor a man and spend millions of dollars on television programs and ads about a man and rarely mention the God of the universe. You see, you can look at this, and on the surface, it doesn't look bad, does it? Kind of nice. But it's the focus. It's the attitude behind. It's the lack of an emphasis on God. Now, Gerald Flurry, Stephen Flurry, those people don't get on their knees and pray to Herbert Armstrong. They pray to God, I'm sure. But is there an image that gets in their way and a focus in their lives that prevents them from really reaching? Now, maybe it would be better if I go preach this to them instead of to you. But then they won't listen to me anyhow. Maybe there will be a time for that. I don't know. Tapes there, websites there. They can read it, listen to it anytime they wish. Probably would take a front. Probably would not agree with what I'm saying at all. Well, it's all about God, they say, behind the scenes. I don't want God behind the scenes. I want God first and foremost in my mind, in my heart, in my thoughts, every day that I'm working on and I don't want anything to get in the way of that, be it something as apparently innocuous as trying to promote the mission and the life and the legacy of Herbert Armstrong. Nowhere does the Bible promote the legacy of Paul or Peter or John. They died, didn't they? Where does God promote their legacy and what they did for him? Doesn't, does he? Now, the Bible writers did obliquely, once in a while, and a little bit, mention one another. In fact, Peter mentioned the legacy, I mean, Paul mentioned the legacy of Peter. Did he not? No, excuse me. Peter mentioned the legacy of Paul. I'll get something right. Give me time. Peter said of Paul, he wrote many things hard to be understood. If that was promoting his legacy... <laughs> It was certainly from the backside. No, they mentioned each other here and there. But nearly everything you read in the Bible is written about God and from God's perspective. So it's a matter of focus. It's a matter, perhaps, of even idolatry. When the focus is something on something greater than on God himself. All right, but there are worse things. There are even worse things.
Verse 13. Going to where it says that. Now the verse 14. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the eternal's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. This is even worse. See, we're going from blocking the door to the church to worshiping the visions in our own minds and our own ideas of how important we think we are, and that is idolatry in itself. But then it gets even worse, weeping for Tammuz. This goes all the way back to Nimrod and Semiramis, all the way back to Isis and Osiris, in fact, all of this paganism goes back to the Tower of Babel. And it's wrong. Those human beings whom Satan used to establish his religion, his way. And all these pagan things and the world's religions go back there. And if we are still involved in any degree in idolatry or worship of self, it goes all the way back to Semiramis and Nimrod, Isis and Osiris, and they were called many other things in many different cultures, but it goes back to those two people, basically. Whom Satan had caused to think that they were in the place of God. That their legacy was important, and it is their legacy that he has brought down through the cultures and the nations and societies for thousands of years, of she worshiping her son and claiming that he died and from a stump came back as a full-grown evergreen tree the next day. Christmas, if you will. Birth of Nimrod, perhaps not of Christ. We look around us today, right now in this very season, and we see those evergreen trees brought forth as worship of Nimrod these many thousands of years later. All bedecked with gold, lights, silver bells, balls, Thalic worship of Nimrod. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again and see even greater abominations than these. Now much of the church has gone back after Nimrod and Semiramis, Isis and Osiris, haven't they? Gone right back to Christmas. Right back to worshiping Nimrod and Semiramis. Verse 16, he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. The inside of the church, the temple of God, brought me right inside the door. And behold, at the door of the temple of the eternal, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the eternal and their faces toward the east, and they worshiped the sun toward the east. We move from Christmas to Easter sunrise service. We move from God's people blocking the door and bringing paganism into the church and becoming idols in their own minds 
And then some of them even going back to Christmas and Semiramis and Nimrod. And it gets even worse because it becomes out and out Satan worship. No men even in between. Satan depicts himself as the light bringer. Bad translation in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Ezekiel. The real word is Hillel, not Lucifer or Lightbringer. The real name brought darkness. And even Hillel, the Jew, who brought a darkened calendar, caused God's people to turn from his holy days at the right times. Is it only coincidence or ironic that Hillel and Hillel are so close together? Probably not. Great deception. Don't want to worship the true light bringer, Christ, but worship through the Son, Satan the devil. There's four levels progressively that you go to. Now, to carry this through, we're entering a time when these greater abominations are going to become more and more apparent. And the whole world will worship the beast and the false prophet, except a very few. And even the very elect would be deceived if it were possible. So if there are only two camps on earth in the next few short years, it will boil down clearly to God's camp and Satan's camp. There will be no in between. So Ezekiel, God caused Ezekiel to put this in four different levels. First of the church walking true worship of God by putting their own idols and their own corruption and the world's corruption into the church and then becoming gods in their own minds, important in their own minds, and most will then deny the true ministry of God that comes to preach against this world and Satan. And turn and worship Satan the devil through the beast and the false prophet. See now clearly why God shows this in increasing intensity as we go through this chapter. Verse 17, Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Did you get it? Do you understand what I'm talking about here? Did you see this? I never saw it as clearly as I'm seeing it today and going through it word by word and grasping. Perhaps this article had something to do with that, this advertisement. began to really understand what is truly going on, and that 90% of the church are going to be led astray by a wrong focus by this man and others. And this, what God is doing as a result. Do you see it? Do you grasp it? 
You grasp how we can be idols in our own minds and worship Satan without even realizing it by bringing self into God's house. Have you seen this? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here in the temple, the church of God? Is it a light thing? Or is it big? Well, they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. Or as the Hebrew says, perhaps they're not. The commentaries say there's a sexual connotation here. Putting the branch. Sex worship of Nimrod to their nose or mouth. Sounds pretty bad. To flaunt our society, i.e. Satan's society, before God. In the foulest of ways. Therefore will I also deal in fury. Not a little bit, but in fury. My eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, Oh God, help us, save us! Yet will I not hear them. How imperative is it? that we get rid of any spiritual ego, vanity, exclusivity, or feelings of being the elect. How important is it that we get those out of our head and recognize the great gulf between us and God and cry out daily, help me worship you, not myself, with my whole heart. Help me worship you and not myself. Have mercy on the ascender.